as I said, our, our final message here from the prophet Jonah is about God's great compassion. It's the central theme of the entire book, and it's meant to move us into action. And what I want to do is I want to read a quote to you that I think would kind of summarize. I think, I think it would summarize Jonah if after Jonah had penned this letter and got on a ship and he came not running from God, but came to us with the same message. He would tell you what he has learned. And I think it would sound a lot like the quote that I'm about to read to you right now. And I'll tell you who said this in a few moments. But I think this reflects the heart of Jonah as he was confronted and, I think, turned by God at the end of this letter, end of this book that he wrote. The quote goes like this. How we fall short of having the passion we should. How would we react if we saw a huge line of blind men walking towards a thousand foot cliff and one by one falling headlong onto jagged rocks below? Wouldn't we put ourselves between them and the cliff? Wouldn't we put our arms around them to hold them back? Wouldn't we implore them and scream at them to turn around? Yet we don't warn or plead with those whose fate is infinitely worse than that of those who would fall onto jagged rocks. Our passive preaching and careful not to offend vocabulary betray our apathy and our unbelief. If we don't implore the world to turn from sin and it, it's because we don't truly believe God's word, we mustn't. We cannot be so deathly cold, so evil-hearted as to not care. We haven't let the reality of hell sink into our minds and soften our hard hearts. The fact of its existence should horrify us beyond words, and then it should be reflected in our prayers and in our preaching, and I'll say this, in our mission. The man who I think here would reflect Jonah's cry after he was corrected this man is our dear pastor, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. This quote I give you is not to evoke guilt in you, but it is to do what the book of Jonah compels us to do, is to move us out of complacency and apathy. And listen, it is to move us to glorify our God and our Savior through reflecting His mercy. It's very important that we see that. Go with me to Jonah. Look with me in Jonah. Chapter 1, I'm not going to cover everything, but just to review. Chapter 1, we see the love of God in so many ways. We see it at the very beginning when he addresses Jonah. And remember, God is sovereign. He's not wondering how Jonah is going to respond. He knows exactly what Jonah is going to do, and he's going to use it to ultimately illustrate God's great compassion, not only for Nineveh, but for Israel, for Jonah, and for all of us who have rebelled against God's calling at times. Here he says to Jonah, I pick you, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. What a divine privilege this man had. God himself says to, you, to him and says, Jonah, you are the man I will choose to declare what I am like to the world of lost people. And God has done that for you also. 
God the Son took on flesh, came into the world and said, I choose you. I've commissioned you with my message to display my mercy. Go into this world. Arise and go to your city. So we see in chapter 1, God's mercy comes to Jonah, to Nineveh. It also comes to sailors inadvertently through even his disobedience. But you know, the one who's not benefiting from the mercy of God is the prophet of God himself. Because he's only doing this as his duty. His heart is still hard. God's mercy will expose that as he proceeds through this letter, through this book. And that's also the mercies of God. Isn't it good that God corrects us? Isn't it good right now that if you heard Spurgeon's words, you were stung in the heart? That's good. Because I think Spurgeon is reflecting the word of God. And God in his mercy doesn't leave us in our depraved mindset like we had before we were saved. He will do something to intervene and change that. He does that with Jonah in chapter 2, right? In Jonah chapter 2, God says, enough's enough. Put him in the drink. I'm going to bring him to repentance through discipline in the great fish. Jonah cries out. He recognizes that his sin has made this distance between him and his God. Now he wants to be restored. He wants mercy. God gives it to him. It's an amazing letter, an amazing book. If you were God, how would you respond to Jonah? I mean, first of all, he, he disobeyed him immediately after he was commanded. He rebelled against God. And then we come to chapter 3. God says, I'm still going to use you. And he sends him back out in mercy to be his messenger. And then God does something. Again, this is an amazing point. It's the irresistible grace of God. It's through the, it's through the sufficiency of the word proclaimed. There was a great revival. But God chose the means by which to do it to be a man who didn't deserve to be privileged with this position as God's messenger. Yet God chose him to display again and again, I am a God of mercy. It doesn't run out. I still pick you, Jonah. I know what you're going to say in chapter 4, but I still pick you. Chapter 4 comes along. We see how Jonah responds to the mercy that God extended to his enemies. And this is interesting because what he's doing is he's hiding his sin. Jonah is hiding his sin along the way through his duty and through his superficial loyalty to Jerusalem or to Israel, the northern kingdom in particular. He's he's kind of masking his sin. He's going through the, the routine, but he's not really doing it from the heart. And God finally says, I'm going to do something so drastic that it's going to expose what's in your heart. I'm going to treat your enemies the way I've treated Israel, the way I've treated you. And you really know what's in a person's heart when you see their enemy come to faith in Christ and repent. You really know whether or not they actually have the mercy of God or they still harbor bitterness because of self-exaltation thinking that they can judge God. And that's what Jonah does in chapter 4. He judges God. This is blasphemy, by the way. This prayer, it's a real prayer. I mean, honestly, he cries out to God, but he is crying out against God in these first four verses. The theme of Jonah is God's compassion, and it's made evident in chapter 4. Let me read from God's word. In Jonah 4, 1 through 11. This is after the great revival. After, again, we approximate 500,000, 600,000 people were converted and brought to faith in God, in God's mercy, of, ultimately in Christ, because they were looking toward God's provision that would atone for their sin. 
But here's how Jonah responded. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And then the Hebrew text it has the idea of saying, God's mercy was exceedingly evil to Jonah. And he was angry at God. He judges God. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? There's resentment there. I was in my country doing my thing. You pulled me out and you've not only made me look bad by bringing this message to my enemies, you have caused me distress because I wanted their judgment to fall. I want them to be under your wrath. They deserve this. I know what's best. So that's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's Exodus 34. He's almost quoting it verbatim. Therefore, and this is his self-justification, his self-exaltation comes to light here. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said to him, do you well... Do well to be angry. And basically Jonah saying in verse 3, I would rather die than see Gentiles saved. Aren't you glad it wasn't the heart of Jesus, the greater prophet? He would rather die to see Gentiles saved than to live. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and set to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. This is just the overflow of his self-exaltation. He is seeking his own comfort, seeking his own pleasures. He's separating from God's mission. He's backing away from the very people he's called to go to, not only proclaim this message, but if he sees them repenting, he should be discipling them and proclaiming the goodness of God and the glory of God. Instead, he runs out and hides by himself. And that's what sin does to you, by the way. When you rebel against God's will... You'll separate from other believers. You'll separate from your mission. You'll seek self-satisfaction and comfort. And then verse 6. It says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. I mean, isn't this amazing? This man's just blasphemed God rebelled against his mission, rebelled against everything God stood for in sending him to Nineveh to show mercy. He's, he's showing resentment and, and hardness of his heart. And he goes out there and he's beginning to suffer because the lean-to that he made is not sufficient. So God sends a plant to help him with his discomfort. And Jonah cares about that. He's exceedingly happy. It's the first time the man's been happy. It's the first time he doesn't say, I just want to die. He's happy because now he's receiving blessings. Blessings, by the way, he doesn't deserve. But when dawn came up the next day, oh, this is great. God appointed not only the plant, he appoints the worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. I deserve it, is what he's saying. I need this. The irony here, he didn't plant it. He didn't water it. He didn't create it. He didn't deserve it. 
Yet in his self-exalted condition, his sinful, selfish condition, he thinks everything revolves around Jonah. And isn't that the case with us? We lose sight of our mission. We become withdrawn. And we start suffering. We think, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. God should bless me. I should be happy. But you know what? That's God's mercy. That misery is meant to move you. Move you back into your mission. Lest we think that this kingdom is our last and final one. This is not our home, folks. Let me be pastoral here. This is not our home. This is our mission. You were saved to declare the compassion and mercy of God that comes through Jesus Christ. That's why you exist. That's why you're called to a church. That's why you're called to be a light to the city, to your world, to your enemies. And when you start thinking that it's all about you, you will reflect the heart of Jonah. And we do this all too often. And when that happens, remember the heart of Jesus. He left comfort to become a slave for us, to suffer in our place, to declare the mercy of God, not just to the elect, by the way. He declares it to everyone, even when he feeds the 5,000. Most of that group turns away from him because his words were too hard when he began to teach them doctrine. Yet he was mindful of their condition. He still taught them. Jonah 4.10 goes on to tell us that the Lord spoke to Jonah and asked him a question. It's kind of a series of questions, but it's really one question overall. The Lord said, what? You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night? And should not I pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. You, you have pity for yourself. You have pity for your comfort. You have pity for a plant. And you're begrudging me pity for my creation. For the people I made in my image to declare my glory You resent me for showing them mercy, but you want it? What's wrong with this picture, Jonah? Jonah is self-satisfied with what he and Israel had. And we need to be cautious of that as Christians. Don't be self-satisfied with your salvation and with your church. It's part of God's mission. It's not the end of the mission. We're gathered, we're called by God To declare his mercy to the world. Now, as I was thinking about this, I'm just going to go pastoral even more on you here this morning, okay? We'll get to the text and the exposition in a little bit, but let me let me preach a little bit about God's compassion. What do I mean by God's compassion? What I mean by that is this God's love and care for all mankind. It's seen through the general revelation in the world. Unbelievers are knit together in the womb just like we are. Right? Unbelievers enjoy the gift of life just like we do. Not to the same degree, but they enjoy life. They enjoy pleasures of life. They enjoy their kids' birthday parties. They enjoy sunshine. They enjoy the beauty of a rainbow. They enjoy those things. That's the love of God toward them. But in particular, the love of God is known toward all men in this way. 
in the leaving of His church until Christ comes. We are deposited here. We are left here to declare His mercy. That's an act of mercy toward not just the elect who will hear it in an effectual calling, in an effectual way, but also to the unbelieving who would not know God nor His attributes apart from the glory of the church. You see, they see Jesus. We are the incarnation of the Lord in that sense. We reflect Him to the world around us. And I think the idea of Jonah that I keep getting pounded with is this. How are we doing? Are we, are we really and truly showing the world that our theology has teeth? That it will move us to look like Jesus? Does it move us to have compassion for the drug addict? For the deviant person who was arrested next door? Does it move us to have compassion toward that deplorable father who abused his children? See, if it doesn't move us that way, then we have forgotten the mercy we have received because we're not any better than any of those people. Those people were someone's child one time. They were somebody's baby they cradled and they fed. Beyond that, they were someone that God knit together in a mother's womb. And God is concerned about them. They were sustained by him. They were nourished by him. They were provided for by him. You understand that? No one lives outside of the, pro- the providential hand of God. No one. Not the elect nor the unelect or non-elect. And who are we? I think this is the, the way that God addresses Jonah. Who are we to determine who deserves mercy and who doesn't? And we can judge Jonah very easily by saying, look at how wretched this guy is. He should have done this stuff. Yet if we don't take the message of the gospel and live it out and proclaim it and share it and evangelize and disciple, we are no better than Jonah. And your mission and my mission is the same. It's all the same mission. The way in which it operates may be different, though. You may not be a Jonah who walks through the middle of the city of Ada and proclaims this message. That may not be your calling. You may not stand on the street corner like Todd Friel on Witness Wednesday and evangelize people the way he does it. Now, you might, though. You might not stand behind the pulpit and preach as a pastor either. But there are ways in which you can show the mercy of God in the way that God has designed you in your sphere of ministry. Every Christian, we need to just always keep this in our mind. Every Christian is called to be a minister. You're all ambassadors of Christ. And you've been each one given a field of ministry to work in so that you could go into that area, whether it's your family, whether it's your friends, whether it's your enemies, and you can show them the love of Christ through your words, through your actions. And again, it's going to look different in everyone's life. And I understand that. That's the beauty of the church. That's why we have people who like certain things and who don't like certain things because they can minister in an area that maybe I'll never minister in. But you can do it with confidence. God wants you to be a missionary of mercy. He has sent you out with this message to go to those people around us and share the mercy of God. Whether they are chosen or not, we don't know that. We know there were souls created by God, loved by someone's mom, beloved by a brother or sister. Don't ever let our theology rob us of God's mercy. Okay? That's my word to you pastorally this morning. Don't ever let our theology rob us 
of God's mercy. Theology and mercy combined, you know what that will do? Theology and mercy combined will produce light and heat. It won't just illuminate. It'll actually warm and heat those who need to hear it. It'll care for them. Theology will, I think, ultimately conform us to the image of our merciful Savior. That's the idea, I believe, that Jesus taught through the Gospels and through the epistles and even here in Jonah. So let's go back to Jonah now. That was all extra. Jonah chapter 4. What we can see here, just on the surface level, we could go much deeper into this, but just on the surface level, we can see that God-exalting compassion produces three things. It exposes, number one, self-exaltation in the heart of sinners. If we aren't willing to show the kind of mercy God shows to us, to others, then we have self-exaltation. We think we know who deserves forgiveness and who doesn't. And it's sin, it's selfishness. And what self-exaltation will do is what it did to Jonah. It'll cause us to separate. It'll cause us to seek our own satisfaction and forget about or actually neglect our mission. God-exalting compassion, number two, also displays sovereign intervention. And what that means is this. God is sovereign. He's the controller of everything in this universe. Every person, every thought, every deed, every act. God is ultimately in control. And everything that happens to the believer and the unbeliever, everything that happens, God's hand is in it to some degree, working out a divine purpose. He is intervening. He intervened in your life. He brought someone to you with a Bible. He brought someone to you with a message of the gospel. He put you in a home where you heard it all your life. He intervened. He placed you in that home according to Acts 17. He designed you to live where you live. The place that you would grow up at. That sovereign intervention. And we can see it in Jonah exaggerated because we see God actually say, I'm in control of the great fish. I'm in control of a great wind earlier on, a storm. I'm also in control of a plant, of a worm. And again, another wind, a Sirocco, a heavy, hot wind. So we see it exaggerated there for our understanding that God's behind everything. And his compassion is working in it for his glory and for our good. Number three, God's exalting God-exalting compassion asks us a serious question this morning. In verses 1 through 5, we hear a self-exalted confession. I've already alluded to this. Jonah is basically placing himself above God's judgments here. It says, But it pleased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That, that's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious, a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Now, verses 1 through 3 actually talk about the self-exalted confession of Jonah. But verses 4 and 5 display God's great compassion toward Jonah. He asks him this question, do you, do you have a right to be angry about this? It reminds me of the, the narrative when God addresses Job. And he basically says to Job, Job, you know, you're, you're complaining a little here. What's going on? Were you there when I created the universe? 
Were you there when I created the stars? Were you there when I created these sea creatures? And he kind of does this here with Jonah. He, he rebukes him, but in a compassionate way, because he, he says it in a way that will actually cause Jonah to react. And through this reaction, God will show great compassion as we move on down the text. Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Okay, so he goes out. He goes out there and he, he puts up a lean-to. The idea of a booth is kind of the booth that the Israelites would make at their festivals, but a little lean-to. And basically, he, I believe, now I've, I've read different accounts of what people think here, but there's one day in, missionary, he's going in preaching, and people are being converted. And it's, it's as if once he started seeing some of this happen, he just leaves. And so he has probably many more days, at least 30 plus days left to still stay in that city and continue his ministry. But instead, he runs out hoping, hoping maybe some of those people won't really mean it. Maybe some of those people will actually say it's a foxhole conversion and maybe it won't be true. And maybe God will punish them anyway. That's what he's hoping for here. He saw that God's compassion was revealed to Nineveh. He saw it because he was the one who carried the message to them. And you know, you know how God showed compassion to Nineveh? How did he do that? He did that by exposing Nineveh's sin. God comes in through Jonah and he says, Your wickedness has come up before me. Your evil actions are before me. I see them. He exposes sin. And that's, that's just a, another way of thinking, though, deeply about God's compassion. The way God shows us compassion, though we don't feel it at the moment sometimes, is he exposes our sin, our sinful condition. And that's exactly what Jonah does, or God does to Jonah here in this text. God's compassion for Jonah is revealed by exposing his sin in verses 1 through 3. He exposes the, the greatness of his own mercy toward Jonah by not striking the man dead, I think, immediately. I mean, he had justification for that. Yet he loved this man. He was one of his own. And he had a purpose. See, the, the story could have ended in chapter 3. It's a great ending there, right? A great revival. Multitudes converted to God. But God wasn't through until his messenger and his people got the message of his great compassion towards sinners. God exposed what was hidden in Jonah's heart in this text. God's mercy toward Jonah's enemies revealed that he had a hidden sin of unforgiveness down deep inside of him. He didn't want it uncovered, yet God in mercy uncovered it for Jonah. Jonah had covered it up with duty. And God says, you know what? I'm going to really expose you, so I'm going to let you see this is a great revival of compassion I am sending to Nineveh. And when he gives this mercy to his enemies, Jonah's heart is unveiled. And just think about this. How do you feel how do you feel when God forgives your greatest enemy? It reveals what's in your heart. Just think about the person right now, the in-law, the friend, ex-friend, the guy at work who is just a constant irritant, someone who has stabbed you in the back, and you find out tonight that that person has been forgiven by Jesus Christ. How do you feel about his forgiveness, her forgiveness? Are you rejoicing like Jesus are you sulking like Jonah? Now, let's all be honest for just a second, right? 
There are some people we have in our mind right now, we think it's not going to happen. God's never going to do that. God's never going to forgive this person because they've done this and this and this, and I am God's child. It would not be right for him to allow this. The minute we think that we are rebuked, I believe, because it's not right that we've received his mercy either. I was thinking Nate brought up David, Uriah, that whole Bathsheba story last week. And just think about Uriah's dad after David has him murdered, after David commits adultery or rape with Bathsheba. And then Uriah's dad finds out that God has forgiven David. How would you feel? Your son's been murdered. Your daughter-in-law has been raped, stolen away from your family. And God forgave the man who did it. God, God has done that for us who have believed upon Christ. And he's doing that. He's showing us that mercy that we don't deserve every single moment. And we never want to forget that when we look around at the world around us. We have no right to judge what God should do with this person or that person. We know what God should have done with us. We deserved his wrath. We know that justice will be meted out by God. We know that Jesus received the punishment for David and his sin. And we can't hold David's sin against him any longer. It's been completely washed away. Neither can we hold things against others that God has cleansed those he has brought to faith in Christ. So how do we respond to our enemies when they receive forgiveness? Think about that. Christ's forgiveness and his mercy toward us should expose why we should grant mercy and forgiveness to others. Look with me in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 18, 18, 21. This is, again, my intent is only this. My intent is to let the word of God speak. And I think that all of us here, when we read this text, we know we can apply this to our lives to some degree. Or we have in the past or we will in the future. But we need to remember this illustration that the Lord Jesus gave about forgiving others when we have had so much forgiven ourselves. Verse 21 says, Then Peter came up and said to, to him, Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother... Now, Understand something real quickly here. You could read this incorrectly. You could read this, Lord, how often will my Christian brother sin against me and I forgive him? That's really not what he's saying. Though it's true, we could still apply it to our Christian brothers. That's not what he's saying. He says, Lord, how often will my ethnic Jewish brother sin against me and I forgive him? This could be a saved person or a non-saved person. It doesn't matter. Jesus answers as many as seven, or he, he says, as many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he had began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. If you don't know what that means, that means 20 years worth of wages, an entire lifetime of wages he owed the king. Okay? And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made, to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of mercy, 
or pity. Out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. And when, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, a hundred denarii would be one day's wage. Small, small compared to what he was forgiven. And he seized him, it says. He began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. The same words, right? The same desire for mercy. Yet the one who'd been forgiven much, what's he do? He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? That's the lesson. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. The heart's the key there, I think, in that text. A heart that has received and understood what it cost Jesus to bring you forgiveness and mercy will show mercy to others and willfully seek forgiveness in conflicts. See, when, when you forgive a debt, the debt doesn't go away, okay? If you forgive a debt, if you owed me a million dollars and I said, you're forgiven, I'm still out a million dollars. I have to absorb the debt. And so it was with Jesus. You owed him a life. And he absorbed the debt and he gave his life for you to show you the mercy of God so you could show that to others. Now, the greatest way to show mercy to an unbeliever is not just to run around forgiving their debts and forgiving their hard words against you, but is to use that opportunity to take them to the greater forgiver, the, the one who has shown the most mercy and explained to them, I want to forgive you. It's, it's a difficult thing to do, but I want to forgive you because I have been forgiven so much by my creator, by my savior. I want to share that with you. And evangelize your enemy, your in-law, <laughs> your neighbor. I go back to Jonah 4, 5. What you can see here is just an illustration of how you go from Jonah to Jesus, I think, in this text. Jonah's selfishness, what's it do? It drives him, where? In verse 5, out of the city to await God's judgment on his enemies. Selfishness drove Jonah away from God's service. And in contrast or in comparison to that, God-exalting compassion drove Jesus into sacrificial service. It drove him into this world. It drove him out of a city to another hill where he would die on Mount Calvary for those that he has shown God's compassion to. I think, that's a, I think that was a divinely inspired illustration to point out that there was one who also went out of a city but not to look for his enemy's destruction, but rather to look for their redemption by going to a cross at Calvary. Go to Hebrews 13 to see that. Hebrews 13. And here you can compare Jonah's response to his enemies, to Christ's response toward his enemies. 
which, by the way, were far greater than Jonah's enemies. And Jesus, by the way, had all the right to declare all men to be judged. Yet he shows us so much mercy. He actually went out of the camp like Jonah as well, but for a different reason. Look what it says in 12, Hebrews 13, 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify or set apart the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, this is this is an amazing text. It says Jesus went out of the city not to seek his enemy's destruction, but to die so they would not be destroyed. And then it says you should follow Jesus. That's verse 13. Let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach. Let us be discomforted for the sake of those who need to hear the gospel. Let us go out and share Let us go out and do good. Verse 15 says, let us offer up continually the sacrifice of our lips by speaking about the goodness of our God. We show compassion and we evangelize in the same way. We do it from a worshipful heart for what God has done for us already. Evangelism is just that. It's the declaring to the world the goodness and grace and mercy of our God And in that, some will hear and be saved. We have confidence in that. God has an effectual calling that he exerts through the proclamation of the word. But if we are settled and comforted and never going outside the camp to bear the reproach, we never have this opportunity to be a part of God's mission. And see, that's that's what I feel so horrible for Jonah about He did everything he was supposed to do because God ordained it. But the man harbored sin and unforgiveness in his heart and he didn't enjoy it. He he could have had joy in the midst of this revival. He could have had joy in the midst of his calling. But instead, he chose misery because of his rebellion. And I want you to have joy in your mission. I want you to go outside. I want you to be willing to bear reproach for Jesus and the glory of God and for the love of the people around us. There is no wasted conversation with the unregenerate. That is a God-exalting mission, and it is so glorious that he allows us to be a part of it. We should eagerly seek people. I love it when I see people go out the door when somebody comes in to visit and they run out the door after them to try to get them to come back. That exalts God. That gives glory to Jesus because that's what Jesus did. He sought us when we were wandering sheep. And so he's calling us to reflect him by driving us into our city, to our enemies, with the message of God's compassion that came to us outside the camp at Calvary. I just, I just want, you to have, I want you to have that fire inside of your heart. If you've received mercy... You need to be looking for every opportunity to declare that mercy to others. And I think you need to do it with compassion. I've talked to a lot of 
cold and dead theologians who have the doctrine right, who have theology down pat, but they can watch a drug addict walk by and not have a tear in their eye. No compassion. Because they want to refine and, and we've got to get it right. Well, let's get it right, but let's get it right and practice it. Because you'll ultimately see it's in the practicing of theology that God will open your eyes to the depth of theology that God himself declared to us through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's compassion in human flesh. And we are called to reflect that to our Nineveh, to Ada, to our neighbors, our friends, our enemies, whoever it may be. I'm nowhere near my notes, so... Let me just go back for just a minute and go, go to Jonah 4, 6. A second point we see here in Jonah 4, 6 through 8, we see, well, we see God's sovereign intervention. We, we saw it in chapter 3. He intervened for Nineveh. And how did he do that? He appointed a weak messenger. But it was a, it was a divine intervention. It's amazing. God chose to save those people in Nineveh, and he did it even through the means of evangelization, even through the means of a strange evangelization, because he didn't really come along with just the, the good and bad. He came along just with the bad news. God's wrath's coming because you're wicked. Yet God used that to drive them to the good news. God intervenes sovereignly here for Jonah as well. He does it through a plant who brings him pleasure. He does it through a worm that brings him pain, and he does it through a wind that brings him discipline. Isn't that amazing? The plant brings him pleasure. It's God's intervention. He wants to care for his rebellious prophet so that he can teach him a lesson about compassion. And so he sends a worm to bring him pain. And then he sends a great wind to make it worse (laughs) so that he sees his heart. And how that even a rebellious man can see that some things just aren't right. And then he's going to use that as a comparison to say, Jonah, you moron. It's a plant. It's your comfort. It's your pleasure. It's your little insignificant life. And there are thousands in this city that are perishing and need my compassion. And you're upset about a plant. Do you see how sin twisted his thinking, drew him inward instead of upward and outward? We have to fight against that by God's word filling our mind and filling our feet. I liked what D.L. Moody said, and D.L. Moody certainly wouldn't agree with all of our theology here, okay? But he said this, and he was right. Our theology, our Bible, our understanding of Scripture needs to be wrapped in shoe leather. And He was a shoemaker. He believed that we need to take what we know, and we need to apply it to our feet, we need to walk it out. I think that will protect us from falling into the trap of Jonah here. Now, verse 6 says, The Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort, his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. And what we see going on here, I think, is God teaching Jonah a lesson about compassion through providence. He's showing him an amazing act of mercy, I think, here. 
by intervening for him personally, caring for his personal needs. I think he's, he's teaching Jonah a lot of things in this. I think he's teaching him, Jonah, don't sweat about what I'm doing in Nineveh. I have more mercy than you can imagine. I'm extending it to you. Not just to 120,000 plus people. I'm even going to give it to you in this condition that you're in personally. I can love Nineveh. I can love Israel. I can even love a wormy man like you, Jonah. And I'll prove it. In the end of this, I'm going to bring you back to a point and a question that makes you recognize I've shown pity to many over and over again. I think Jonah was thinking at this point, okay, if God blesses Nineveh, here's Israel, here's Nineveh. If he blesses Nineveh, Nineveh is now over Israel because he had to drain some of our blessing over here to give it to Nineveh to make them a blessed people. And so we're now not as important as we were And now they might have more power than we do. And now they might be used. The Assyrians might actually be used by God's rod of correction one day to come back and attack Israel. And I think he was thinking that because he knew that was the pattern of God throughout history. And that's really exactly what God does. But even that was an act of compassion to Israel. God does allow later on Assyria to come in and attack Israel, rise up in power over Israel. But it's because he loves Israel. He uses this worm to come in and attack so that he can show them, I am a good dad. I discipline you for a good purpose. Your hardships have a divine purpose as believers. And God would bring Israel back again and again in repentance to him. I think what 6 through 8 show us is that God's sovereign intervention covers not only pleasure, but it also covers discipline. It all comes from the hand of God. It all comes for the good of God's children also. We need to remember that. I think we can learn from Jonah here. Both pleasures in life and pain are under the direction of God's sovereign intervention and his sovereign compassion. He is allowing it for a good purpose in our life. A lot of times it is to press on us until we actually see the sin ourselves that God can see hidden in us. When trials come, what's down inside of us usually comes to the top. When we give up too easy, when we complain too much, we know that it's a lack of trust in God to provide. And God, in in allowing displeasure and pain sometimes, brings us to that point quicker than at other times. And that's an act of mercy because he wants us to be conformed to the image of his son. And he'll do whatever it takes to sanctify his children. He's a good dad. How many of you are good dads? You've had to spank your child because they've broken a rule. They've hurt someone else. They've done something wrong and they needed a spanking. And you did that to protect them from future repercussions, from future danger. It's what God does here. Even with Jonah, he's even preparing him through this suffering for a good purpose. He appoints everything For the good of his children. We can see that here. Even the pain. What what I think is interesting here is we know that Jonah is out of the will of God, but he's not out of the love of God. Even through this, as God is showing him that he's a good dad, he's going to correct him. He's showing that he's still loved by God. And that's a comfort for me because God must love me a lot at times because I feel this. And so do you when you've rebelled against God, when you've went your own way, when you have settled when we have settled for the comforts of this life rather than the mission God calls us to 
and we're miserable, that's a praise to God. Sometimes God will strip us of what we are clinging to so that we will look back to what we are called to do as his children, as his ambassadors. I think that's part of what we see going on here with Jonah. He's going to learn some of that as we go toward the end of the text here. Go with me back to Jonah 4 and verse 9. 9 through 11, thirdly, we we see something going on here. We are seeing God address Jonah in the form of a question. Now, we along with Jonah are being asked this question. What I find interesting is you recognize in verse 11, it's an open-ended question. There is no answer. And I believe the reason for that, it's many, many reasons, but I believe one of the primary reasons that there is no answer is because that question is not just addressed to Jonah. It's addressed to the reader. It ends on this note openly because God himself is addressing you and me. He is saying to us, just like he did to Jonah, what will be your answer here to this? This is a serious question. He says in verse 9, But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which... There are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Now, I believe verse 11, referring to the 120,000, referring to most likely infants, children who have not yet come to an ability to understand right and wrong. Nevertheless, whatever he means here by that, there are a tremendous amount of people that Jonah should have been concerned about rather than himself. But I think God's trying to ask And say to Jonah and us today in this question is basically this. Ask yourself if you can see beyond yourself today. That's what he's asking Jonah. Jonah, you cannot see outside of your own comfort. You can't see that these are souls that will dwell eternally either in hell or in heaven in my presence. All you can see is yourself. I think what God is asking us is, can we see beyond ourselves this morning? I think we're asked here in this text to look at the needs of others above ourselves, just like Christ did. Turn with me to, a, I think, an, an, an important illustration in Acts for this, in Acts chapter 20. There is a historic precedence for being asked this question and responding with, yes, Lord, I will do whatever it takes to look outside of myself. I am willing to suffer for the name of Jesus. What I I want to prepare and protect you from as a church is this. Reading narratives, reading gospel accounts about Jesus and the apostles and thinking that was true for them, but that is not necessarily true for me. God may be addressing them here in a way, expecting something from the Apostle Paul that he would never expect from me. I don't believe that's to be true. I, I don't believe that's true at all. I believe when you go into church history and you see past the book of Acts, past the book of Revelation, in church history, we see what we're going to see here in Acts 20 repeated over and over and over again through the martyrdom of the saints and even up to today. People who are willing to go outside them. Selves 
outside of their comfort, outside of this American idolatry of self and seeking our comfort and our goods and going out to those who have needs. I'm not saying to a foreign field. I'm saying to your backyard, to your bedroom, to your kids, to your neighbors. We have to learn to see life outside of ourselves or we're going to fall in the trap of Jonah. The Apostle Paul understood this. All of Christ's ambassadors have understood this throughout the centuries. Acts 20.18 gives us an example of what looking out beyond yourself should look like. He's, he's leaving the church at Ephesus, which he was there at the beginning of and evangelizing and working and laboring with them. Now he's leaving because God's called him to go further. And just so you understand something about the Apostle Paul, not one mission that he went on was easy. He knew everyone would lead to discomfort, sorrow, and pain because Jesus said when he converted him, that's the way it's going to be. You're going to suffer many things for my my name's sake. And if Jesus suffered for his own name's sake, if Paul suffered for Jesus' name's sake, who are we that we would not suffer for his name's sake also? Are we greater than our Lord? No. Look what Paul says here happened at Ephesus. Or Luke writing this said this, In 2018, and when they came to Paul, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord. I love that. Verse 19. Notice his evangelism, his discipleship, his labors wasn't first and foremost because of the people. He was there serving the Lord. It flowed over to the people. He said, I was serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to suffer. That's what I know. He is not looking toward himself. He is looking outward with compassion to serve the Lord. Verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry. The ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Church. The Lord Jesus gave you that ministry. And that should be our attitude. That should be my attitude, and it's not often. We should not count our lives as precious to ourselves, as valuable to ourselves. And this isn't super spirituality. This is, I think, just deep pondering of the mercy of God we've received will transform how we use our time, our stuff, our life. I think that's what's going on there. I think it sets a pattern for us in ministry here when we see what the Apostle Paul did. He went out to both Jews and Greeks, preaching repentance. Constrained by the Holy Spirit, he did so with tears, knowing trials awaited him. There's no greater life for the Christian than that. And when we we stop seeing our life as that, we become satisfied with this temporal comfort and this temporal kingdom 
we will become frustrated, discouraged, complainers, self-focused. And listen, I'm saying that because I have endured that myself. But when you get a glimpse of the mercy that you've been given in Christ, and you see the love of God for you, a sinner saved by grace, you can see that there is something greater that God has called you to do than heap up riches and time and comfort for yourself. I love John Piper's book that talks about don't waste your life. Don't spend your retirement years collecting flowers and seashells. You spend your retirement years evangelizing the world for Jesus Christ. You're a paid missionary. You spend your college life, your family life doing that. Your church life doing that. We can't see the needs of others if we're so focused on ourselves that all we think about is our comfort. What that will do, that will make you, according to the Apostle Peter in Second Peter, go there with me. When we focus inward too much, when we focus on our own comforts and don't see beyond ourselves like Jonah was doing, if we, if we don't see beyond ourselves, we will become blind. We'll become cold and neglect those around us. Nearsighted is how the Apostle Peter puts it in Second Peter 1, 3. See, here's what we've been given. We have the divine power from God. His divine power, that's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God in human flesh loved you enough to come into this world, to die in your place, live a righteous life for you, suspend himself on a cross, bearing the weight of your curse, rising from the dead on the third day to go into heaven to be your high priest. That power has been given to you. You belong to God. You are loved by God, saved by God, sustained by God. You have that in written revelation. You have that in your heart. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. It's through those promises of salvation you're partaker of this divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and your virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. And by the way, these things aren't for the super spiritual. These things aren't for the greater disciples. These things are for every single person who has received eternal salvation. This is the reason you're saved eternally is to display it on earth temporally. Because you're displaying the goodness of God. He says, for if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from becoming or being ineffective, useless, or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, your salvation has a divine purpose. It's to be a witness for Christ. And if you don't share it, don't use it, your life has little purpose. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he has been cleansed or he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. You don't want to be nearsighted. You don't want to feel useless. I mean, if you struggle with that right now as a Christian, if you feel like it's just a waste of time every day, same routine, same old thing, you want that to stop? 
You take what you've learned in the Word of God and you go share it with somebody tomorrow. I'll guarantee you, your self-focused feelings will disappear. Because you were created for something greater than self-comfort. Like Jonah, you were created to declare the compassion of our God. In Jonah 4, 9 through 10, we see Jonah had pity on a plant and he mourned over its loss. And he mourned over his own loss of comfort. He mourned over the plant's death, but he didn't mourn over sinners. He didn't mourn over souls that God had created. He's basically saying to Jonah, Nineveh is not a plant. Your neighbors and the city of Ada is not a plant. It is a city full of souls who need to know a loving and a gracious and a sovereign God. And he has chosen you to be his ambassadors to tell them about this. God nourished Nineveh, everyone in it. God nourishes every person in this city. He nourishes your enemies. And you've been given opportunity, if you're in a conflict, to share the mercy of God for their good and His glory. God may save them. God sustains us. The reason we have life and breath and being is so that we can be ministers of grace and mercy. We need to ask ourselves, can we see beyond our temporal comforts today? Or are we nearsighted like Jonah? Now, I know this is hard. I, listen, I'm preaching to myself. You guys are getting the overflow, okay? It is easy for me to sit in my study with theology books. I enjoy that thoroughly. I could do that seven days a week. And it is hard to preach. It is hard to evangelize. It is hard to be a disciple. But there is no point in me studying and me heaping up knowledge for my own arrogant use. He gave us the revelation so we would declare it to the world for his glory, for his namesake. You're accountable for everything you know, not to heap it to yourselves, but to share it with others. That shows God's compassion. God revealed the word to humanity when Jesus took on flesh and became like us. He revealed his desire for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to show us what love looks like. And we are to reflect that in our lives as well. That's our calling. And if you're ready to do that, but you think you can't do that, that's okay. You can do that. You can do that. And it starts with that willing heart. If you want to reflect God, if you want to evangelize the world, if you want to be a witness and declare the goodness of God, God will give you the equipping you need to do it. His Holy Spirit will reside upon you. And His Word will equip you to say it accurately. And it'll happen, I think, also when you dwell upon what He's done for you personally. Have you been given much mercy? Has God showed you the kind of mercy that He shows Jonah? Have there been times in your life when you have completely went the other direction that God called you to go, and yet over and again, He forgives you? He calls you back. He rebukes you. He corrects you. He confronts you. That's God's mercy towards you. That's His love for you. He is a good dad. He cares for you. And if you're cared for by a God who comes into this world personally, God the Son comes here to die for us, can we not live for the sake of His name and for the good of others? I think we can. I think that that's our calling as a church. The church exists for that reason. We are to shine the light of Christ. We are to be the salt. 
that gives them a taste of God's compassion. Let's pray that God will do that here in our hearts and our lives. Father God, we do come to you again knowing that you are the source of our compassion. You are the source of our salvation. You are the great redeeming God who sought us out when we were enemies. Christ Jesus, you died for us when we were yet your enemies. And now that you have died for us, even when we were your enemies, how much greater now is your love for us that we are your children, that we have been purchased by your blood, that you shed your blood receiving our wrath so that we could be your children forever. God, if that's the case with each one here today, I pray that that would fill our hearts to such a level that we cannot do anything but proclaim it, share it, express it in our lives to others. And Lord, I do want to pray now at this moment for anyone here who is yet to repent of their sins, turn away from the things they've trusted in, turn away in their good away from their good works, turn away from trusting in their religious activity and turn to the only source of salvation, which is your grace, the grace that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ who died on Calvary to receive our penalty, to grant us what we could never earn or deserve, which would be your salvation. Father, I pray that you would move upon that person's heart and today grant them what they need more than anything in this world, the compassion that comes through the blood of Christ. Pray that you would move us all into action for your namesake today. In Jesus' name, amen.